Why doesn't Esther ever mention God? All we can do is speculate about it. And the answer that I have is this. Uh, Esther, the event of Esther occurs about 100 years after the returns from, uh, after the first return from Babylonian captivity. It's dated sometime around 450. She's roughly contemporary with Ezra and Nehemiah. So it's about 100 years after the first return. Most Jews never went back. Most stayed in captivity or in, in exile. Are you with me here? When God had promised the return and made the, the return possible, most Jews didn't want to go home. Most wanted to stay among the nations. Oh, yeah, most of them had been, sure. Most of them had been. In a world in which an old man was 35, a 70-year captivity <laughs> means two generations elapsed. So, so most of them had been born there. They didn't want, but, but Israel was in Egypt for 400 years, and all of them were born there. And, and they wanted to go, but they didn't want to go. Did you ever have the feeling that you wanted to go, then you had the feeling that you wanted to stay? <laughs> well, that, was, that was Israel and Egypt. But in, in Babylonian captivity, it was the, it was, they decided on staying and not going home. So they are not serving God. They can't serve God. They're, by definition, serving false gods. Um, in that respect, then, the Sabbath is the sign of the covenant. And that, that uh, bears on what we're about to say, uh, what we said last week. Leviticus 23 and 20, uh, to 25 talk about the sub Sabbath years and the Jubilee years. Okay. I was going to ask a question on the last Okay, time. go ahead. Uh, this uh, covenant forever, <laughs> is it, the word forever, how does that fit into the new covenant? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, it's an easy way to translate a phrase that in Hebrew that has a lot of different meanings. <laughs> one, of the, one of the meanings, and, and if you watch it, in a lot of places where it occurs, wherever you see the word forever, if you'll, if you'll substitute the word permanently in the Old Testament, you'll pretty much have the idea. Um, when... Uh, States are admitted to the Union. They're given borders, yes? And they are permanent borders, but not forever. Pardon? Until they're not. Until they're not. So West Virginia seceded from Virginia, yes? And so became a separate state. That's, that's the point that I'm trying to make. They're permanent. They, they take some, some doing to change things that are permanent, yes? But they can be changed. So when... when uh, but these are God's words. These are God's words, but they're not going to be keeping Sabbath forever. They're only going to keep it permanently. I don't discern the difference. Okay. <laughs> turn, <laughs> turn to Colossians. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. That's to the left of Hebrews. I was turning to the right, but turn to the left of Hebrews. Colossians chapter 2. Um, and um, 
verse uh, 16. <clears throat> In fact, uh, pick it up at verse 14. He has wiped out the handwriting that was against us that consisted in, in decrees that were contrary to us. And he nailed it, he took it out of the midst, nailing it to the cross, having made a display of the principalities and the authorities. He showed them up uh, openly, triumphing over them by it. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you in food or in drink or in the keeping of a festival or a new moon or a... Sabbath. What's he saying? When he says, don't let anyone judge you in the matter of, a, of the keeping of a Sabbath, what does that mean? Uh huh. So it was permanent, but not forever. Turn to Romans chapter 14, at which we've looked on several occasions. In Romans 14, uh, you have the the two groups, the weak and the strong, that we've talked about. And there are two issues that Paul raises with reference to the difference between the weak and the strong. One is food. The, pardon? Oh, Romans 14, now verse 5. The other one that he raises may not be one that, that they were struggling with, but, but he raises it. One honors one day above another. Another honors every day. What's he talking about? Sabbath. Probably Sabbath. Why would you say that? You know, it fits the context. He's been talking about the law can't give you righteousness, and you've got people who won't eat meat and people who are happy to eat meat. Well, what kind of people wouldn't eat meat and observe one day as opposed to others? Well, Jewish people do, yes? Pagans don't do that. Pagans in Rome... Uh, worshipped whenever there was a day for one of the gods, and there were so many gods that they could almost take the whole year off, but <laughs> they would often choose the days that they were going to honor. But one, one day above another would be about Jews, yes? So which one of these two is right in verse 5? And how do you know? Yeah, it doesn't. But look at the end of the verse. Let each one be convinced in his own mind. Yeah. So which one's right? Whoever is actually doing this for the Lord. So he says in verse 6, the one who honors the day honors it for the Lord. And the one who eats, eats to the Lord. Yes? So if you act so much as the meat eater, what you have behind it. Yeah. Yeah. So so that the uh, the Sabbath... Is something was a was a, uh, a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. As we came into this screen, I was saying that not only the Sabbath day is part of the Mosaic Covenant, and we talked about other Sabbath days. Yes, do you remember this? <clears throat> First day of Feast of Unleavened Bread, last day of the feast. Uh, feast of probably, I'm guessing, may not be right, but the Feast of First Fruits might be a Sabbath day. Uh, feast of uh, in-gathering, uh, the, the uh, feast in the midsummer, the feast of Pentecost, the feast of trumpets in the fall, the day of atonement, the first and last days of the feast of tabernacles, all of those are also Sabbaths. 
So you might have, in an eight-day period, three Sabbaths in a given week. It's not just the seventh day. And I, I have asked classes for years, where does Scripture move Sabbath to Sunday? And they will say, well, first Christians gathered on the first day of the week. Yes. What time? Yes, we do. We know for two reasons. One is the social setting of the church. And, and second, <clears throat> because of a letter that a Roman governor wrote in the second century. Um, he, he was a, the governor of Bithynia on the north coast of what we now call Turkey. And he wrote back to the, the emperor Trajan asking him for, for guidance. Uh, am I doing what's right with the Christians or not? And... Um, uh, he said they gather early in the morning, before sunrise. Uh, so if, if you really want to be <laughs> right, one, you do one of two things, because you also have a meal. So some met early in the morning and some met after sundown. Now, why those times? They could be detected. Well, they could be detected because you're going to have to have light. Wherever, wherever there's lots of light and a lot of people gathered before sunrise, you, that'd be easy to spot. Certainly cooler in the summertime. Be cooler. <laughs> <laughs> also in the winter. <laughs> so why before sunrise or after sundown? Because most of the church was made up of slaves. And the only time they had off was, it, was after sundown or before sunrise. Are you with me here? So 9 o'clock on Sunday morning wouldn't have anything to do with Sabbath. Are you with me here? Why, why did they gather on the first day of the week? Not because of its Sabbath, but because of the resurrection of Jesus. Sabbath ended something. Resurrection begins something. Are you with me here? Yes, no? So, um, but if you're going to keep Sabbath, got to keep all of it. The commandment's not just about some of it. It's about all of it. So Leviticus 23 to 25 talk about, that passage talks about Sabbath year, one every seven, we mentioned this last week, and the Jubilee year, the 50th of every, of every cycle of 50 years. <clears throat> that means you have a cycle of, of seven sevens that, that elapse, and after the seventh sabbatical year, the 50th year is another year off. So what is Sabbath about? Well, what we'll say shortly is... is that very point. Jim, how, how do Sabbatarian churches today like this? Uh, how do they handle this? <clears throat> today, um, I just finished not too long ago a commentary on Leviticus by a Seventh-day Adventist guy. It's a very good commentary. It's one of the better ones. Um, he says the Sabbath day is the only true Sabbath. All the rest are just extensions of it, but that's the core of it. And that's sounds like special pleading to me, but the, the larger issue is for us to go into Deuteronomy and into Joshua and see some things that we need to see. And in order to do that, I want to go back to our Bible here and go to Deuteronomy, what was that? Deuteronomy what? 320. Um, uh, <clears throat> Here Moses is speaking to the tribes that want to settle on the east side of the Jordan. And he says, the Lord has given you this land to possess. 
all your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. Is that print large enough? Yes. All right. Uh, only your wives, your little ones, your livestock. I know that you have much livestock, and that's great grazing land. That's like western Kansas for grazing. It's just amazing. Um, uh, shall remain in the cities that I have given you until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as to you, and they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan. What does rest mean there? Enemies no longer pursuing them. Oh, enemies no longer pursuing. Anything else? What, what, what's the point of occupying the land? It's promise, okay? So fulfillment of promise, safety from enemies. What else? It would provide them their crops, their needs. Yeah. It's going to it's gonna provide them the blessing. Yeah. Are you with me here? So what does all this mean? Let's go back in thought to Genesis 1, uh, 2, 1 to 3. Why did God, what did we say last week? What did that word mean to, to God rested, we said? What does that mean? To stop. To stop. Why did God stop in Genesis 2? Hmm? He was through with his creation. Well, yeah, he was through with his creation. Do we say anything more about creation? If I, had a, if I had a theology word that I applied to the following situation, what would it be? Here's the situation. I start out with um, a, a situation where everything is a chaotic, horrible mess. And God, through his work, brings it into such a condition that he can say it's very good. What would be the, the, soter- the, the uh, theological term? Like That's why I te- quit teaching Greek years ago. Uh, what would be the theological term that you would use, a good Bible term that you would use to describe that? Yeah, well, what's the process called, though? Creation. Yeah, but the Bible doesn't use that very often. Salvation. salvation. He starts with very bad and ends up with very good, and it's God's work. (laughs) It's called salvation. Are you with me? Yes? Turn to um, Psalm 136. I'll, I'll do it here on the screen. Uh, Psalm 136 is a psalm of praise. It starts verses 1 to 3 with a call to praise. Do you note the imperatives in verses 1, 2, and 3? Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. Then in verse 4, I start with what's called the cause for praise. Typically at the beginning of a cause for praise section, by the way, any psalm that starts, praise the Lord, almost invariably is going to be a psalm of praise. It's, it's not a prayer. It's calling people, someone, to engage with you in boasting about God. Okay? Um, by the way, saying praise the Lord is not praising God. It's instructing people to do it. So quit instructing people to do it and do it. Yes? Well, how do you praise the Lord? Well, you, you boast about the things that he does. Typically, in the cause for praise section, you see that in verse 4, to him who alone does great wonders. Yes? 
Um, typically, at the beginning of the cost for praise, you have a summary so that you're telling the people, these are the things I want you to praise God about, and then you start detailing them through the rest of the, of the psalm. So in verse 4, to him who alone does great wonders for his steadfast love endures forever. What are the great wonders that he does down through verse 9? Creation. Do you note that in verse 4 I have to him who? And then again in verse 10 I have to him who? Yes? The translators are acknowledging that we have a new unit in the psalm. Uh, so what are the great wonders God does? Well, he does creation. If you were in college and you were studying creation, what department would you be in? Science. If you were in, this wouldn't happen in college, but <laughs> if you were in seminary and you were studying salvation, what department would you be in? Theology. theology. What have theology and science to do with one another? Obviously nothing. Because <laughs> they don't in the university. So how could they possibly? Yeah. Well, my point is to say, <clears throat> the author of Psalm 136 thinks that salvation and creation are linked together. Look at Psalm 19. The heavens declare. This happens to be a psalm of praise as well. It doesn't start with a call to praise. It's, it just starts with the, the reason for praise. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day poureth forth speech. Night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. Uh, but their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit is to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. The law, the law of the Lord? How do we get from the, the, the sun and going all through the earth to the law of the Lord here. The, the, there are actually commentaries that have a commentary on Psalm 19a, verses 1 to 6, and Psalm 19b, verses, nine, verses 7 and following. Because obviously the two have no unity because creation's in the science department and covenant is in the theology department. Yes? Or... From God's point of view, creation and salvation are essentially the same thing. So if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The Bible begins with creation, which is marred by sin, and the rest of the story takes us to what conclusion? What's, what's the end? What's the end? What's the very end of the Bible? Yeah. Turn, turn to Revelation 21. What's the very end of the Bible? The end of the story. Richard? The, no? Yes, but not, not the language. Ah, new creation. The Bible starts with new creation that can be marred. It ends with a new creation that cannot be marred. The story is how that creation gets restored so that the human race can enjoy the blessing of God 
and fulfill their, their divinely created purpose of ruling over the earth. Are you with me here? And creation bookends all of the work of salvation. And as we will see in a, in a I may, maybe this coming Sunday in Sunday school, Romans 8, um, 23, our salvation isn't complete until our bodies are redeemed. And indeed, even the redemption of our bodies is not sufficient until the whole earth is redeemed too. That's in Romans 8, 21, 22, 23. So you can look at that at some point when, it's interest, when it gets to your mind. The point I want to get to is that rest means um, salvation is complete. Why did God stop? Because there wasn't anything more to do. The horrid creation, that, that is the horrid situation that the earth was in in Genesis 1 has been completely remedied Everything is very good. The best explanation of very good that I've ever heard is that it fits the purpose for which God created it. It's able now to do what God created it to do. It was not in Genesis 1-2, but by the end of chapter 1, it is. So it's all very good. So God stopped. Why must Israel rest on the Sabbath? We said this last week. They rest on the Sabbath day to, to acknowledge I don't grab the blessing from God as I labor on this soil he's given me. He gives the blessing. That's not as great an issue on the Sabbath day. You know the story? Do you know the name R.G. Lee? Some of you do. R.G. Lee was a very famous Baptist preacher back when, what, what years? Oh, 50s and 60s. 50s and 60s. Yeah. Um, he had a famous sermon, uh, Payday Sunday. And as I recall, in it he used an illustration of two farmers. One was a Christian, one was not. Is that true? Uh, one, the, the Christian farmer always took Sunday off. And the non-Christian farmer always worked seven days a week. And when harvest time came in, they, the two compared their harvests, and they were the same. And the, the, uh, the uh, uh, non-Christian farmer said to the Christian, you've, you've been looking for the blessing of God and you've gotten nothing more than I've gotten. <laughs> and the Christian farmer said, yes, but God doesn't settle his accounts in the fall. <laughs> it's payday Sunday. Are you with me here? The point is, is that one day a week in a farming situation probably isn't going to mean the, the, the well-being or the failure of your crop. Yes? But one year in seven is going to be a huge step of faith. And two years together at the end of a 50-year cycle is going to be an enormous step of faith. You're either going to have to trust God or confess that that keeping the Sabbath on, on one day a week really didn't mean anything. So effectively, what this is doing is saying... Do you live by faith or do you live by works when you, keep, when, you, when you observe Sabbath? Does that make sense to you? Since we are not an agricultural people, then taking a, a, a year off in seven wouldn't mean much. And where you live, it would be a hike to get to a field where you could pull grain out of the field and make your bread. Yes or no? Uh, that would be pretty tough. So... 
sabbatical year wouldn't mean the same thing for us. Indeed, folks, we have a different issue altogether. Um, uh, I, I confess that Sabbath is complete, that salvation is complete. Nothing may be done to gain it. Sabbath keeping is an act of faith. Um, so what I must ask in Hebrews, and we looked at this last week, is salvation complete for us? So we looked ex- at some length at verse, um, uh, chapter 4, verse uh, 10. The one who has entered into his rest has ceased from his labors, even as God ceased from his. So I have to ask, what does it mean for us to talk about rest and entering into rest, ceasing from our labors? But more importantly, we looked at verse 11. Let us therefore be zealous to enter into that rest. We asked last time, have you ever seen anybody resting zealously? No. When they're watching the Super Bowl, they do. Yeah, that's not resting. You wouldn't call that rest. Um, This afternoon when I wanted to take a nap, that wouldn't have been rest for me at all. The, the larger issue, though, is if I must enter it, then I must be outside. So salvation is not complete. Evidences of that in the book of Hebrews follow. Verse one, chapter 1, verse 14. We are among those who are about to inherit salvation. When we were in that chapter, I asked you the question, how much of what you're about to inherit can you spend? Nothing. So there's the old Ziggy cartoon. Some of you know Ziggy. Yes? Ziggy is sitting at the the bank loan officer's desk. And the loan officer says, well, Mr. Ziggy, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to have more collateral than that you expect to inherit the earth. (laughs) (laughs) Hebrews 9.28. Jesus is is coming for those who await him for salvation. Look at Hebrews 9.28. We're waiting for him for salvation. Are you with me? He will appear a second time. By the way, the Bible never talks about a second coming. That's fairly important. One of the arguments against the rapture is that that would mean a third coming for Jesus, and there are only two comings. The Bible never says that. He will appear a second time, though, for those who await him for salvation. Do I have salvation now if I'm waiting for it now? No. Hebrews 11.7 uses the ark as a symbol for what the whole book of, whole chapter 11 is about. People are trusting God about a future that doesn't make a lot of sense unless you factor God into the situation. So the ark Noah made the ark for the salvation of his household. So they were born again when they walked into the ark. Amen? Justified, sealed, washed in the blood. Amen? Uh, Hebrews 2.3, we can neglect so great salvation. If I have it, I can't neglect it. 2.10, Jesus is the captain of their salvation, bringing many sons to Glory? This is glory? Now is glory? No. No. 
Hebrews 5, 7, he's able to save, uh, Jesus cried out to him who was able to save him from death. Salvation entails being saved from death. Hebrews 5, 9, he is the cause of eternal salvation. That could go in either direction. Uh, Let me skip. Uh, Hebrews 9.28, we've already looked at. Hebrews 10.36, those who do the will of God obtain the promise. So Hebrews is taking back what Romans gave. (laughs) Romans gave us free access to the promises of God, and Hebrews said, no, you've got to obey. You've got to do the will of God. We'll have to ask what doing the will of God means in Hebrews. Hebrews 11.13, people died without receiving the promises. Now, of course, these are Old Testament saints. We're not talking about people in Jesus' day in this passage. Hebrews 11.35, there are people people who refused um, to do what was necessary to escape torture for their faith because they wanted to obtain a better resurrection until the resurrection then maybe there's no salvation. Are you with me here? At least as far as Hebrews is talking about. I want you to remember, folks, the term salvation can have three senses. You remember this? What are the three senses? I, my ears are really stopped up and I can't hear very well. Jan was sitting next to me in the car and I couldn't hear, hear her very well. What, what did you say? Okay, the initial phase, being born again, justification, Sanctification. which is the progressive phase, glorification, uh, which is the climactic phase. Uh, so I can talk about salvation in any one of those three senses or all of them together. I had you turn to First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5 last week. Do you remember that passage? It's an important passage. Think about it some more. Turn to 1 Peter 1. Let's look at it again. This is a passage you really need to think about because it puts together the three phases of salvation for us. But it only applies the word salvation to one of them. So, uh, blessed be the God and Father. This is page 598, if that's helpful to you. So, um, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord of our, uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to the greatness of his mercy has, and here's the first phase, the initial phase, begotten us again. Yes? Yes? So people who are begotten, he's, he's writing to people who are begotten, to, uh, uh, to a living hope. Um, yeah? Yeah, same thing, same thing. A begotten is just older language. So he, uh, we, he has begotten us again to a living hope. So he's moved from the beginning to the climax. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. Now he mentions that living hope, an inheritance un- uh, uh, incorruptible, undefiled, does not fade away, kept in heaven for you who are being kept by the power of God through faith to a salvation ready to be revealed at the last day. 
of the three phases, so you're being kept, that's the progressive phase, yes? So I've got the beginning, the birth, the progressive phase uh, being kept, and the climactic phase, the glorification. But which of the three does he apply the word salvation to? All of them? Some of them? Only the last. So for Peter, salvation has to do with deliverance at the last time. Are you with me here? Yeah? That helps enormously as you work through the book of 1 Peter. Same thing's happening here in Hebrews. Hebrews is talking about something other than what we as evangelicals have always thought of salvation. I say again what we've said on perhaps every night that we've met so far. Of all the references to the word group save, save salvation, saving, about half of them refer to the initial phase. And of the remaining half, a, a part of them refer to the progressive phase, a relatively small part, and a larger part um, refers to the final phase of salvation. So I cannot simply assume that salvation always means new birth and justification. Now, where did we get into that? Well, think back over your life as a child of God attending church and all the sermons you've heard. What authors do, do the sermons come from? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Paul, and very little else in the New Testament. Are you with me? Yeah, and they're all about getting born again or doing everything that's commanded. Uh, the, the, the point is that as evangelicals, our favorite authors are John and Paul. So in, in talking about salvation, everything about salvation revolves around what John and Paul mean by that. But there's a James and there's a Peter and a Jude, yes, in the New Testament as well. And Matthew doesn't fit into that very well at all. So a very well-known book was written back in the 80s um, purporting to explain the content of the gospel from the book of Matthew. And the guy came this close to heresy and then would back off. I read it when my grandmother was dying. I, I, that's very, I, I felt like I was dying reading the book. But, uh, but he was trying to impose Paul and John on Matthew. And Matthew, M-A-T-T-H-E-W, hardly ever spells John or Paul. <laughs> Amen? Jim, you were going to say something. Well, By the way... A, we had a joke at seminary on ourselves. It was, we'd say the uh, Baptist Trinity was the Father, the Son, and the Apostle Paul. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Your, your birthday was yesterday. Yes. Happy birthday. Good to see you. Uh, so what I've got to do is learn to let authors define their own terms. Okay? Um, of all things, this guy went to the Sermon on the Mount in order to establish the gospel. Well, what's the Sermon on, about, on the Mount about? I tell you the truth. Unless your righteousness shall exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no way enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's surely the, the, the imputed righteousness of Christ. Matthew never mentions it, not once. In the Sermon on the Mount, it's about, it's about doing a perfect obedience to the law to get into the kingdom, not about how to be born again. 
and they're not necessarily interchangeable terms. Does this make any sense to you? Got to let authors define their own terms. What I'm doing here is trying to help you see how to define the terms. So we look at the uses of the words to try to figure out what they're saying. The last verse on the screen is Hebrews 11:39 and 40. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive uh, what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Did not receive. What does that phrase, did not receive, imply? I looked at about 30 translations today, and for, for the majority of them that I could make sense of, they all read the way this translation reads. What does did not receive imply? Pardon? Yeah, but what does did not mean? Incomplete. Incomplete. What's another way of saying that? No. Another, another way to say the, the tense of the verb. Did not receive or? No, no, it has to be past tense. How about have not received? What's the difference between did not receive and have not received? Well, both are past. Both, both in a sense, both are past. Have implies that there is something yet to get. Did can mean they didn't at the time, but might have subsequently. Yes? Would that make sense to you? My whole life, and I don't see it. Say again. I've been here from Texas my whole life, and I don't see all that difference. Well, you do, because you use it just the same way. Uh, when, when, uh, uh, when I say to my son, did you brush your teeth this morning? He said, I did, yes. And if he says, well, I have. But not lately. But not lately. <laughs> uh, I might ask him, have you brushed your teeth? Yes. And if he says, yes, I have, then it means the same thing that didn't. But if I say to you, I didn't then, but since then, I have. See, didn't is specific to a past event. Folks, the problem with English grammar is we studied it the wrong way in school. All those years we studied the wrong way. We were trying to figure out where commas went <laughs> instead of trying to figure out what the language actually means. Uh, the, the difference between did not and have not. Abraham, when Abraham died, where did he go? Oh, boy, now I've opened a can of worms. Please don't say Abraham's bosom. It, it couldn't go to his own bosom. So where, where did Abraham go? Heaven or hell? Heaven. heaven. Well, isn't, isn't heaven the promise? Well, now you're not so sure, are you? Yeah. So what was, what was Abraham promised? To you and to your seed, I will give you the land. Yes? Did he get that? No. He lived, as Hebrews 11 says, as a sojourner and an alien on the earth, having no, no civil rights except those that God would grant him. So 
Abraham never got the promise. Yeah. Yeah. Look at the look at the screen again at 39 and 40. Note the rest of that statement. Because God had provided something better for us, so that they without us should not my text here reads be made perfect. Come to fulfillment. Have you gotten the promises? They're coming. Abraham, so heaven isn't the promise, and it isn't the promise for you either. The promise is what Hebrews said in in chapter 2, verse 5, the world which is coming, about which we are speaking. Are you with me? Um, We are not created for heaven. We are created for the earth. Folks, do you not see vistas? You travel some. And as you travel, you see places you think, this is the most beautiful place. This is just this is grand and glorious. And, oh, gosh. Hmm? Yeah. Uh, I just can't even imagine. I, 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 on the Internet, I see pictures from time to time of places, and I think, God, I'd, I'd love to go see those places. Oh, I'd like to see them. The Tetons and the Glacier National Park and... Yosemite, I've been to Yosemite once. I want to go back. I just want to sit in Yosemite Valley and look at it for about a week. And Yellowstone. and y- Yes? And then you, that's just our country. What about all the other countries of the world and all the gorgeous things God has created in this world? Does, does that not cause your heart to soar at times? Um, we were riding up the, uh, 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 the cog rail car going up Mount uh, Pikes Peak and they stopped at one point and there was this huge meadow out um, it, as it turned out east of us we were up on a ridge and looking down on this meadow on the side of the mountain and they said this is the this is the meadow where um, America the Beautiful was written because from there you can see Kansas on a clear day so uh, amber waves of grain, purple mountain majesties. Yes? <laughs> uh, that's all there in one, one vista. Well, what about all the other places on the earth um, where the glory of God is seen and our hearts soar when we see these things? Folks, we were created for this world. We weren't created for clouds. Um, there is going to be a new earth. So... We're created for that. My, my point here is to say in verses 39 and 40, there are only three of the approximately, I forget, the, I didn't count the number of translations, something between 25 and 30. Only three translated it, have not received. Uh, one of the uh, German translations says, until this day, they have not received it. And you could add the word yet. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, have not implies that already, but yet would make it clear. My point is then, folks, if... Everyone that's going to be saved, is that more fulfilled? Uh-huh. Well, we'll talk more about it as we go. We've got more to say about it uh, before we're done, but we have to get this settled in our minds. Folks, the salvation we have is wonderful, but it leaves us open to severe persecution. Yes? Yes or no? Is it worth it? 
Well, of course it is when you're not being persecuted. <laughs> it's when you're being persecuted, you're not quite so sure. I have two friends, both of them men who committed themselves to the Lord in unusual ways. They have what's called cluster headaches. I've just learned about these in the last couple of years. You had them? Oh, your mother did? I've had them one time. My friend Noy has them on a 15-week basis. My friend Larry has them permanently. So in the last, uh, this morning, in the previous 24 hours, he had had six attacks. And they're called suicide headaches because a huge percentage of people who have them take their own lives because the the pain is so bad. You just can't even consider continuing. Um, When when the pain gets that bad, I woke up this morning thinking about these two guys and just struggling. Lord, why? And, of course, the Lord's not going to explain to me why he allows people to have this kind of suffering. Um, How is the question? How can I survive such things? And the answer is because I have a hope that's greater, yes, than escaping the suffering. Yes or no? Right? That's what Hebrews is about. It's about the hope that is before us. Instead of looking always to the the past, what has been. What has been is good. For the Old Testament, the model statement of salvation was the exodus from Egypt. You wanted to to know what salvation was like, look to the exodus. So over and over they go back and talk about or use the themes of the exodus throughout the Bible. But in Isaiah, God says, there's coming a day when no more shall the people of Israel say, as the Lord lives who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. Because I'm going to do something in your days that's so much greater, he said. From that time on, you will say, as the Lord lives, who brought us back from all the nations of the earth. The salvation from Egypt was a great salvation. It it showed the mighty power of God. Yes or no? Right? But the salvation from all the nations of the earth is going to be greater. And folks, salvation from sin is a great salvation. But the salvation from the even presence of sin. Yes? Salvation from the threat of sin. Salvation from death. From pain. From suffering. Is far greater. And there's going to come a time when the salvation we experience is so great. We'll hardly even remember these days as days of salvation. These are the days of beginning. Those are the days of of completion. Am I making sense to you? This is what Hebrews is about. There is a hope set before us that's greater than any hope we have ever imagined. And if I keep looking back to, folks, um, the songs we sing are about the wrong things often. Near the cross I'll watch and wait. Why not the empty tomb? It's a whole lot better. Yes? Yes or no? Then why do we sing about the cross and and not the glorious resurrection of Jesus that proved everything that Jesus claimed and did? Are you with me? So, So we're looking for something that's coming in Hebrews. There are two passages of encouragement 
We glossed over one of them in our earlier treatment, chapter 2, 15 to 18. Let's go back and just read it quickly here. Um, we, we hardly even referred to it. Pick it up at verse 14. Since, therefore, the children participate in blood and flesh, he, by the same token, had to share in the same, so that through death he might annul the power of him who has the, has, uh, the authority of death, that is the devil. Well, folks, is the devil's authority over death annulled yet? No, not yet. And, verse 15, that he might reconcile those who, who uh, because of fear of death, continually through their living, uh, are subject to bondage. As long as I'm subject to death and bondage, I only have the beginning. I don't have all, everything that salvation means. So he says, for he, he, he does not help angels, but he helps the seed of Abraham. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, so that uh, there, are, there are times when I really wish people could read Greek. Uh, most of the time, you don't need to be able to read Greek in order to make good sense and, make, and do a good job of studying the Bible. But there are times when it just would be really helpful. And here is one of them here at the end of verse uh, uh, 17. So that a merciful he might become and faithful high priest in respect of the things that pertain to God to make, to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus was made like us so that we will be made like him. And it goes on then in verse 18. Uh, for in that he suffered being tempted, he is able to uh, help those who are being tempted. But if he never fell, how can he help? He doesn't know the force of temptation in my life. How could he? He never succumbed to it. Hmm? Yes, but it's, it, there's, there's more to it. Let me explain that a little bit more to it. I think we may have done this. Um, maybe I can bear 10% of the force of temptation. Did we talk about this? And somebody else can do 20 and somebody else can do 30. So anybody that can bear 30% of the force of temptation is a lot stronger than I am. Um, Jesus bore 100%. We think of him as having, having experienced none of the force of temptation. But he's a human, and humans are temptable. Every bit of it, and didn't succumb to it. So he knows the force. He, folks, nobody knows weakness except him who is almighty and has become a human baby. Yeah. How often he has to retreat and rest and pray. Yeah. Exhausted. Yeah. You, you, you see, Arnold Schwarzenegger really doesn't know what it means to be weak. He's never really been weak. He's always been growing in strength. He's learning what it means to be weak because he's getting old. Yeah. Amen. He's losing some of that power that he had. Now he's beginning to find out what it means to be weak. 
But Jesus knows what it means to be weak because he who is almighty became a human baby. Couldn't even control his own body functions. Is it, how, can, how can he not know our weakness and thus sympathize, being merciful to us as we face our temptations? That's the first of the encouragement passages. Um, the second, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, having therefore a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. <laughs> I can only imagine... You, 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 you experience this through your physicians, probably most often. You get a really good doctor, he's nearing retirement. Yes? Are you, are you with me here? Almost invariably, a really good doctor is getting close to retirement. I, I don't want him to retire. I want him to stay in business. Or you're going to take Medicare and you have to go find That's right. Yeah. So, but... but Let's say he's got another guy in his office, and when he retires, you go to the other physician, and that other physician is not quite so good. Yes? Mm-hmm. By the same token, you could have had a really wonderful high priest at some period. He's probably the, the really great high priest because he's suffered himself. He's struggled with uh, sin. Um, He's, he's known the effects of these things on his spiritual life, on his vitality. He's found ways through the grace of God to overcome them and, and now is willing and ready to offer to you the same kind of response he's gotten from God. But then he retires and you get his upstart son who's really excited about being high priest and thinks he's a whole lot more hotshot than he actually is. Yes? But those high priests have only passed through the veil into the Holy of Holies. This high priest has passed through the heavens. Uh, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now I want you to start looking at what are the exhortations that the book of Hebrews is making of us? What does the author of Hebrews want us to do? What does it mean to hold fast your confession? It's going to be really important next week when we go to chapter 6. Hold fast your confession. Um, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to suffer together with our weaknesses since he has been tempted in every way like we have, yet without sin. Uh, So let us draw near with what? Confidence. Confidence. This word is a word that's used in uh, secular Greek for the way a, a, an Athenian citizen would talk to another citizen. If you saw the movie Mask of Zorro, Anthony Hopkins played in it, and at one point Anthony Hopkins, who's a nobleman in the story, is, is taking the role of a servant. And uh, Antonio Banderas, who's, who's going to be the new Zorro, is saying to Anthony Hopkins, won't this... Uh, our enemy, won't he recognize you? He said, no. He said, he will see me as a servant. He will never even look me in the face. And when Anthony Hopkins walks behind Antonio Banderas, he walks with his head down. And sure enough, the enemy never looks at the servant, and the servant never raises his face. The word in Greek for boldness is full face. We had a man in our church in Memphis, uh, the first church that we, we were members of. Every time he'd pray, and I, he had a good heart, 
Every time he'd pray, he'd say, Lord, we come to you as, as humbly as we know how. And I knew what he meant, and, and, I, and I applauded the this, this spirit with which he prayed that. It's just not biblical. Quit coming humbly. Start coming boldly. God invites you to come full-faced before him. Let us come with boldness before the throne of, the throne of what? Grace. grace. Why does he call it a throne of grace? Yeah, whatever the throne is described by is what the throne dispenses. I don't go to the throne now for judgment. I go to the throne for grace. It's a throne of grace. And even for us, even the throne of judgment will be a throne of grace. Uh, our, our light affliction, Paul says, is working for us an exceeding weight of glory. You remember this? then even the throne of judgment is a throne of grace. Uh, let us come with, with boldness to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace for well-timed help. By the way, therefore, notice here, very important reference for grace. What is grace? We say it's unmerited favor. Yes? It's inadequate. It's accurate as far as it goes, but it doesn't say enough. It's, it's favor God's favor granted for the sake of Jesus to those who have forfeited all claim on his favor. Well, what does that favor look like? Does he just smile at us and then tell us, no, you can't have that? I, I hear you. I, I hear you, and I love you. I'm not going to give that to you. <laughs> but notice what grace does. It brings well-timed help. Yes? For What? Every need, yes. Are there any specifics in the book of Hebrews? <laughs> How about suffering? Are you with me here? So, uh, this second encouragement passage. Um, now we come, where are we on time? Good. Uh, we come to a, a new portion of the book with verse uh, 14. Do you notice that for the first time we've mentioned the high priesthood of Jesus? We have intimated elements of priesthood for Jesus. We suggested that perhaps in chapter 2 with that, that language of, of being made perfect in chapter 2 uh, through sufferings, that perhaps this is his, his ordination ritual as high priest. Um, what did they sprinkle the high priests with when they ordained them? Blood. blood. Well, Jesus had some blood in his suffering. Uh, but now we're going to start talking about, in, in chapters 4, 14 through 7, 28, talking about specifically the high priesthood of Jesus, and in 8 to 10, 8, 1 to 10, 18, the supremacy of Jesus over uh, the um, covenant, the sacrifices in the tabernacle. Um, it's Im important that we see that Jesus is supreme, but he's high priest. Uh, since we don't live in a world, you and I, that has priesthood, we, it's hard for us to even conceive of what this means, except some of us have had an experience of this 
my uh, my mentor in Memphis used to talk about um, the odd position that pastors are in. He said, uh, when when somebody's desperately ill in the hospital or when someone has died and the pastor comes in, he said, you can watch it. People physically relax. Have you seen this? Why should you... Why should people relax when the pastor walks in? Well, because he's got a direct line to God. <laughs> uh, I, I appreciated that, Brother Ken. <laughs> uh, um, we treat the 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 the, the, uh, the clergy as somehow being distinct from the rest of us. They really aren't. The pastor I was under growing up said, uh, evangelism is for the sheep. Sheep have sheep. Shepherds don't have sheep. I thought, even as he said that, he's a kid, I thought, but pastor, there's something wrong with that. You're one of the sheep too. (laughs) His point was that evangelism is not the primary responsibility of the pastor, and that's true. But but there's that dichotomy between the clergy and the laity that the, that the New Testament never even uses. Yeah. Jim is a boy, uh, a boy across the street was Catholic, and being in a city where there were a lot of Catholics, and we saw the priests, that also gave us a vision that the pastor is like the Catholic yeah. priest. Yeah, yeah. And that shaped my view of, oh, what, yeah. a, of what a pastor was. So, so what we've got to do is adopt a new worldview, thinking about what it means to have a priest as we go. So let's look at it. In 5.1 to 5, he starts out with laying out the basics of what a, what a priest is. So he says, uh, uh, every high priest is taken from among men uh, and is appointed on behalf of men to serve the things of God so that he might offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Um, uh, uh, to be able to, and, and do you have uh, deal gently? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's probably right. All the lexicons go there except one. Um, this actually is a Stoic philosophy word. Do you know anything about the Stoics? The, the word the Stoics were were trying to get rid of all passion of every kind. Perfect equanimity. In every situation, is, it was the goal. So you never get excited, you never get happy, you never get sad. You just perfectly, I, I don't have an adjective for equanimity. <laughs> uh, um, pardon? It is, but that was their goal. And, and it's not even healthy, but, but that was their goal. And this word means to measure out your passions. So you, you don't deal too severely and you don't deal too gently. It's, it's something in the middle. You, you, when, when a pastor who thinks he's really got it together confronts somebody in his congregation who's sinned, he can be awfully hard. Yes or no? It's the pastor who's been broken a time or two who, when they come, can, can talk turkey to them, but also talk turkey in a way that expresses real compassion and Hope doesn't leave them hopeless before God. Are you with me here? You identify with people who can empathize. That's right. 
So this is what we're talking about here in verse uh, uh, 2. Uh, he's, he is himself beset by weakness so that he can deal, and I prefer this phrase, deal moderately with the people. Uh, I've had students come and they tell me, well, I cheated on that test. And I'll say, I'll say well, let me look at what I, can, I need to do here. Uh, now there's, there's forgiveness for this. We don't need to, we don't need to, you don't need to carry this on. Thank you for uh, faithfully coming and talking to me about it so that we can deal with it. I'll, I'll need to change your grade. We'll make an appropriate change to your grade. But there's hope here, and we'll talk about uh, the forgiveness that God has given for our sins and so on. Does this make sense to you? Because if you've, if you've yourself been through this, you know what people need better. Jesus never sinned, but he knows all the power that sin has in your life. So you can measure out the way he deals with us. A person who never failed can be awfully condemning. But a person who knows the force of temptation and failure in your life can be really welcoming. You can find hope in that kind of situation. So he's beset by weaknesses. Um, Verse 2, so that he's able to deal in a measured way with the ignorant and and the wayward, since he himself is beset by weakness. I think... The, the people that I have found most trouble dealing with are the people who are always getting it wrong and having to come in and work it out. And then they come again and they come again and they come again and they come again and they come again. Yes? So I think I have thought over the years, well, gosh, isn't God getting weary of me talking about this with him again on this subject? And the answer is no. Uh, and because of it, uh, he, he, uh, he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer a sacrifice for sins. And no one takes this uh, honor to himself, but when he is called by God, as also Aaron was. So this is, these are the basics. Here are the fundamentals of what priesthood means. I need a priest who's taken from among men. I need a priest who's appointed to serve the things of God. I need a priest who, who can offer sacrifices for my sins, who himself knows my weakness because he himself, he himself was surrounded by weakness. I need a priest, therefore, who can be, who can be compassionate when compassion is needed, who can be stern when, when sternness is needed. But in both cases, his compassion can be stern and his sternness can be compassionate. Yes? And one, therefore, who is called by God. Now he's going to apply that to Jesus. Look at verse 5. So also, and you have Christ. This is, this is not a name in this place. This is, a, uh, this is an adjective. And I think I've, I know that because it has a definite article. And, and uh, Christ can be a name, but here it has a definite article. So I think I ought to read it somehow that way. So also the Messiah uh, did not glorify himself to become high priest, but the one who said to him, you are my son, this day I have begotten you, uh, also said uh, in another place, you are 
a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now he links Psalm 2 that we've been talking about since chapter 1 to Psalm 110 that will, that will frame the discussion from this point all the way to chapter 1018. So in one way or another, everything that he's going to be talking about from this point is going to be under this heading of Psalm 1104. Psalm 110, you know, this is the only place in the Bible, in the New Testament, where verse 4 is quoted. Most of the time it's Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies the footstool of your feet. We quoted that in chapter 1. But now he goes to verse 4. And of course the question is why? Why should Psalm 110.4 be appropriate to Jesus? Uh, David is one of whom Isaiah can say, there is one coming, Isaiah 11, there is one coming who is a shoot from the stump of David. You remember this? Isaiah 11, 1. A few verses later, it's either 9 or 10, I think. That same one who is a shoot from the stump of David is the root of Jesse. That's a conundrum if you don't have the Gospels. Yes? How do you solve that? How can the same entity be an offshoot from David and the root of the whole family of Jesse? It makes no sense. Unless you have one who is both a man and God. Yes? So... What do we say about the man? Well, the man is the one of whom it is said, the Lord Lord said to me, you are my son, this day I have begotten you. Yes? But he also said, in the same chapter, chapter 1 of Hebrews, he also said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies the footstool of your feet. And And he skipped the portion that we so often see quoted, The Lord said to my master, sit at my right hand. If Messiah is David's son, Jesus even asks this question in the Gospels. If Messiah is is David's son, how can he be his master? The son is never master over the father. How can that be? How can he be seated at the right hand of God? Are you with me here? But then... He says in verse 4 of of Psalm 110, uh, the Lord has sworn and he will not repent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The one who is son of David and David's master is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, why does he put all this together and how? Well, folks, David was king. What is the main city that you associate with David's kingship? Jerusalem. Do you know any of the early history of the city of Jerusalem. Melchizedek was there. What else happened? Why is Melchizedek even raised, raised as an issue? Yeah. Uh, something else happened at that same place. Sacrifice of Isaac. Yeah, sacrifice of Isaac in Isaiah 22. Um, so, I'm sorry, Isaiah. Gen- Genesis 22. Oof, Isaiah. Um, the, uh, the, the point is, Melchizedek, who is Melchizedek? 
Yeah, and? Um, King of Salem. King of Salem. Turn over to chapter 7. Let's anticipate what we're going to see. He's going to, he's going to do the same thing at the beginning of chapter 7 that he did at the beginning of chapter 5. That is, he's going to talk about something, so he lays out the basics of it, then he's going to show how Jesus fulfills the basics. So verse uh, 1 of chapter 7. For this Melchizedek is king of Salem, uh, priest of Most High God, who met Abraham um, when he was returning from the uh, destruction of the kings and, uh, and blessed him, to whom also he paid a tithe of, uh, Abraham paid a tithe of all things. First being by interpretation king of righteousness, then king of Salem, which is also king of peace, uh, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, um, uh, being made like the Son of God, uh, abides a priest forever. So he, he lays out the... F- I know, we'll have to wait until later to talk about it. But these, these three verses lay out all the essentials that you need to have in order to understand Melchizedek. Well, he's king of Salem, king of peace. He is Melchi, king of Tzedek, righteousness. Are you, are you with me? Well, Melchi means king, right? Yeah, and then Tzedek means righteousness. So he's laid out all the essentials. If he's king of Jerusalem, and David is king of Jerusalem, That's interesting. Raises some questions. When David brought the ark up from Obed-Edom's house, finally to Jerusalem, do you know how he was dressed? Do you remember? Seems like a kind of fine point, but it's fairly significant. Hmm? Can't hear you. No, he was wearing an ephod. Like a priest. Why is he wearing, why is he wearing priestly clothing? Um, if Queen Elizabeth ever kicks off, I don't know whether she may live forever. Who knows? But Charles, ostensibly, I, I'm beginning to think maybe Charles might uh, might abdicate in favor of his son at his age. But um, um, if Charles comes to the throne, he will he will be announced as king with all the titulary of of the kings of England. Going back a thousand years. Huh. And in that titulary will be a phrase protector of the, I'm sorry, what, what's the I phrase? Defender of the faith. Do you know where that title came from? It came from the days of Henry VIII, who was quite a theologian. I, I know he's got terrible reputation and, and well earned. He's got it fully deserved, but he was quite a theologian. He was contemporary with Martin Luther, and he wrote tracts arguing against Luther, and so uh, cogent were his arguments that the Pope bestowed upon Henry VIII uh, the title Defender of the Faith. And that title has been carried on through all the centuries to this very day, and when, if, if and when Charles comes to the throne, he will be declared and already has made statements about being a, the defender of no longer the faith, but the defender of faith. But, but the phrase, now, now what's the point? It was conferred on Henry, not on Charles, not on Elizabeth, not on, uh, 
who was the who was her father George the George the something sixth, sixth. Um, that wasn't conferred on them it was conferred on Henry but they keep uh, 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 accumulating titles if you get a, a, a King James someday uh, out of the uh, off your shelf if you're not using the King James look at the very beginning and see if there is a an epistle dedicatory do you know what I'm even talking about right there's a dedicating ep- uh, uh, epistle written by the translators to King Hen- uh, King um, James the first and sixth uh, and the titulary is there uh, to uh, the uh, the uh, his royal majesty King James the first of England the sixth of Scotland King of England Ireland Scotland Wales France I think there are a few kings who would contest that yes why, why do they have that as part of the titulary? What I'm suggesting is David's wearing an ephod. By the way, he appoints one of his sons priest in 1 Kings. Um, no. No, 2 Samuel. He appoints one of his sons priest. That's the way we translate it. That's probably right. It might not be, but it's, it's pretty close. It's the only word for priest that we have in Hebrew, Kohen. Um, so what's he doing appointing priests and wearing priestly garments? Well, a hypothesis. In the ancient Near East, kingship and priesthood were tightly bound together. Where did David get his priestly role from Melchizedek? He cannot function at the tabernacle or the temple, but he can function in other ways as a priest. Are you with me here? Does that make any sense? Say again? Isn't that what got Saul in trouble? King Saul. Yeah, he was trying to, to uh, make... Uh, in, what got Saul in trouble was he was violating the commandment of Samuel. Uh, but you could make sacrifices. Um, there were sacrifices made when, when, when uh, David absents himself. I mean, rather, let me say it differently. When David... Uh, is a boy and Samuel is going to Bethlehem to anoint him king what what does God tell him to keep him out of trouble with King Saul do you remember what's the story that God gave him to tell Saul I'm going to make sacrifice at Bethlehem he's a Levite he's not a priest so how can he make sacrifice because people, even, even lay people can make sacrifices in their villages. Just not the covenant sacrifices. That have to, that, those have to be made by the covenant priest at the covenant center. Are you with me so far? Yeah. Elijah makes sacrifice on, on Mount Carmel. Yes? Samuel makes sa- sacrifice at Gilgal. Are these all violations of God's commandments? Or are, is there something else going on? And, and the point is that David thinks of himself as a priestly person, but it's, it, it is accelerated when we come to the future. So Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies the footstool of your feet. The Lord said to my master, David says, who is David's master? It's his son, who is also by right as king, 
also high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Are you with me here? So he is, he is rightfully, he has the right lineage to be the, the priest forever, and he has all the right qualifications to be the priest forever. So, with just a few minutes left, um, we've, we've belabored verses 7 through 10 in the past, so we'll pass by them fairly quickly. Who, in the days of his flesh, offered up prayers and, and petitions to him who was able to save him from death with strong crying and tears. One of the comments that I saw on this this week pointed out, we think of this, and most of the comments go to Gethsemane, and that is kind of the key place for us to see that. We don't see Jesus praying anyplace else to speak of. John 17. But that's where he's instructing. Well, he's, no, he's, he's praying, but he's praying... Uh, uh, before the disciples. So I don't see him wrestling at night, as we mentioned a few minutes ago. What was, what was he struggling over? Why did he pray all night? Because um, he's struggling with Satan. The, the issues are far larger than simply the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're just tools. He has a far deeper battle to, to, to win, to contest. And so, with strong cryings and tears. And he was heard. Why? Because what, Sarah? It says for because, of his deep because of his deep reverence for God, he was heard. Even though he was son, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. I looked at that word that's translated even though today, and tried to make it mean something else, but that's what it means, <laughs> even though. Um, he is son. What did we say son means? Chapter 1. You've got to get in the habit of picking up pieces of meaning in chapter 1 and carrying them into chapter 2 and adding new pieces of meaning. In chapter 3, you pick up some more and you add them to what you got in 1 and 2. He's, pardon? Yeah, this is the way it's supposed to work. Son is the one who is king, and because he is king, he may be called God. And because he is God, he is the one who is eternal, never changes, and yet he's distinct from God, because God, your God, will anoint you with the, joy of, of the oil of joy. But also, he sits at the right hand of God, waiting till his enemies be made the footstool of his feet. Are you with me here? And now we add high priesthood to the whole thing. So the son is high priest. And if we write in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, then suffering was his ordination ritual for priesthood. So, so verse 8, even though he was son, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. And having, you have here, having been made perfect, perhaps, yes, any other translations in verse 8, qualified 9? In. Having qualified? That's a great translation. Um, another would be having, having been um, prepared for office, potentially. Uh, he became the cause of eternal salvation, um, having been designated by God a priest forever. I'm sorry, a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. 
Unfortunately, we have to stop here both in time and also in thought because there's a huge break from here through to the end of uh, through to chapter 6 verse 12. This huge break is one of the most important um, warning sections in the book. Everybody knows about this one. Almost nobody thinks about the more the more difficult one in chapter 10. This one's difficult. Doesn't this passage teach that we can lose our salvation? Look at 6, 4 to 8. For it is impossible for those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the, the heavenly gift. What is the heavenly gift? The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our, our Lord. Amen? Tasted the heavenly gift become partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and fall away, it's impossible to renew them to repentance since they cru- crucify again the Son of God and put him to an open shame. And just in case you think you can weasel out, the next two verses, 7 and 8, make it almost certain that something like that's going on. So verse 7 Uh, For the earth that drinks in the rain that comes upon it often uh, gives birth to plants that are useful for those for whose sake they are are planted, uh, and uh, it shares in the blessing from God. But if it bears um, thorns and thistles, it's disapproved. It's near curse. Its end is burning. So there it is. And all we have to do next week is solve all the problems in that passage. <laughs> and I think I can. So uh, we'll have to stop at this point. But, um, if the Lord comes between now and then, we won't have to. I'll never be able to understand it because nobody in heaven will have the answers. So <laughs> let's, uh, let's close with prayer. Father, we have hard work ahead of us. Um, but what you've already shown us is so great, we ask you to let these things sink deeply into our souls. Let us come to know Jesus as one who is, in fact, a merciful high priest who is also faithful in the things that pertain to you. Let us come to know his high priestly ministry, the hope it gives, the confidence, so that we can indeed come with boldness before the throne of grace and a throne of mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Father, uh, teach us what that help is. Teach us what we urgently need. I, I, I fear even to pray that. Teach us what we urgently need so that when it comes, we'll be able to value it with all the value that it's worth. It's in Jesus' name, therefore, that we pray. Amen.